This is the Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the networking business where we discuss vendors, moves and news, analysis on products and positioning and a look at the business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break. We think. I'm Greg Farrow, as always. You know me from my blog at Ethereal Mind and so forth. And with me today is Andrew Connery-Murray. How are you today, sir? I'm very good, Greg. How are you? Well, it's a little early. It's uh, 7.0700 PST time uh, after a solid night of boozing and generally rousing with the Network Field Day crew, surrounded by a bunch of engineers who were all very excited to escape from the data center. Uh, and they allowed you off the island of Great Britain? They did. They did. Whether they allow me back is still to be found out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also joining us is Mike Fratto. Mike, how are you? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. Uh, and folks may know Mike uh, from his current gig as an analyst at Current Analysis or his previous work as editor at Network Computing. Work or ouvre? <laughs> <laughs> or is that too harsh? <laughs> That's too highbrow. <laughs> oh, am I getting a bit highbrow? Well, let's kick off the show today and start off with the first topic. Everybody around the table's brought in their favorite selection of things that happened in the last week or so. So we're going to run down the order and say, what happened to IPv4 addresses? There was going to be a huge crisis. And IPv6 was imminent, and that was, what, two or three years ago, when Network World published a blog post where they said, whatever happened to the IPv4 address crisis? What do you think, Mike? What's the reason to move? I mean, it's what it comes down to. Um, hmm. You know, IPv4 is working fine. There's no business reason to be disruptive and to start you know, changing out to IPv6. It, I'm not saying this is correct. I'm saying this is the perspective. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so why bother, yeah. right? Um, you know. And it's also, you know, I have to wonder how many, how many cloud services, how many hosting providers, how many internet stuff that enterprises rely on have moved to IPv6 and are actually deploying IPv6 and, and, and make it usable. So there's, there's still a whole lot of friction there to, to move to IPv6. What do you think? Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah, it's funny reading that article, and, and there was a real long string of comments underneath it with some interesting arguments going on. I felt like it's sort of the networking version of the global climate change debate. Um, you know, a lot of people are ready to say the sky is about to fall, and there seems to be a strong contingent of folks saying, we're fine, it's all good. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I agree with both of you. There's, there's no real commitment to change to IPv6, it's one of those. Um, how do we switch from unleaded fuel to le from leaded fuel to unleaded fuel? Uh, eventually, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's the same thing. It, it sort of happened slowly. Everybody knew we had to do it, and it just took a while for the transition. I mean, in my job, so I've, the last couple of companies I've worked in, they said to I said to them, you know, do you want to do IPv6? And they said, what's in it for us? And they when we went down the list of things, and they said, nah, not yet. We'll do it. And most of the enterprises at the end of the day have a slash 24 or a slash 22 or something like that. And really what, if you look at enterprise space, which is by far the largest, you know, thing, they're, um, you know, one, what do they need? One IP address for a web server, one IP address for a mail server, a handful of IP addresses for some other things. You know, if you've got a slash 24, it's probably not full. Yeah. So there's plenty of stock, you know, still sitting there waiting to be consumed in the IP However, there is one uh, thing that's coming on is that uh, Aaron, or Ch you know, especially down in China and uh, in Asia, has run out of IPv4 addresses. And there are sites now being deployed in Asia which are IPv6 only. And as that continues, um, that means that there are broadband networks, there are 
have hosting providers who have no IPv4 addresses and can't get any. And if you don't have an IPv6, those people can't reach you at all. Yeah, I, I imagine that those those broadband providers globally are probably they have to be doing some kind of um, you know carrier grade NAT to deal with you know v6 to v4 translation. No, because they don't have any v4. Not even outfacing. Yeah, they, they can't they can't get any. So if you're setting up a new broadband provider today in China or Asia, you know, around Taiwan or Singapore or Malaysia, or, you know, Indonesia. Down in Fiji, Papua New Guinea, there are no IP address for addresses. You can have IPv6, you can't have IPv4 because there are none to give you. If you're an existing business, you can, you know, do some stuff to collect your IPv4s and to do, as you say, carrier-grade NAT gateways. But the carrier-grade NAT gateways are beginning to, they have scalability problems. They cause choke points. And stacking up IP addresses means they have to install ever bigger thingamies, boxes, to do the IPv4. And there are applications that are now failing because the stacking is so aggressive that they... And then what they're doing is they're saying, oh, okay, we can't just do one NAT, let's do three NATs. They actually NAT it once in the region and then NAT it once in the state and then NAT it again federally, if you like. And Mm. there are applications starting to time out and to break down. So we're starting to see problems with carrier-grade NAT as well. Yeah, that becomes a cautionary tale for the rest of the world. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, you know, leaded, unleaded. You know, even the people who say, I'm giving, you can take my leaded fuel away from me over my dead body. And <laughs> do you remember that? You know, there was cars and they, the people who you said, I would like leaded because it's got the extra octane in it. Right. It well, they hard. probably switched to diesel. Oh, well, I did uh, for a while. <laughs> and then they took the subsidies away on the diesel. IPv4 can survive. Oh, please. I mean, what is this guy in the comments doing? IPv4 can survive nut jobs. Well, I can survive for a while. I mean, so a, a couple of years ago, I was talking to uh, Verizon about a, a different issue. Um, and uh, I had asked them about, you know, rolling out V6 on Fios. And, and you know, their comment was along the lines of, um, you know, dealing, dealing in the consumer space and the broadband space, it's actually fairly complicated to, not to roll out IPv6 um, or, to roll, or to use IPv6 and V4, but to make sure that they can roll it out in a way that all the way out into the home in a way that it doesn't break stuff because mm. they don't want to raise their support costs. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I look around my house. I've got about 15 things connected to my network, all IPv4. None of them do – well, four do IPv6, and that's a couple of Windows machines. Mm. The rest of them are all IPv4. So unless – unless, and I'm not using a Verizon router. I'm using a, a, a Cisco router but, or a Linksys. But um, un- unless they had some way to, to – to, uh, reliably support dual stack you know, in the home and, and make mm. that very simple. I mean, that, that's a significant challenge, and I have to imagine that the other broadband providers have uh, safe, s- face similar issues as well. Yeah, those things are solvable. They will be solvable over time. It's a bit like, so for example, Mac OS X has got IPv6, and the iPhone uh, yeah. iOS has IPv6 support as native. Partly the carrier problems are that they've got a lot of obsolete equipment in their networks. Yep, That's, yep. you know... And they don't want to replace it because they don't want to replace it because they hate their customers, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, it's also expensive. <laughs> well, arguably, right, it's actually not expensive. They've made it expensive, you know. 
<laughs> by having obsolete processes and procedures and, and you know, bad organizational, bad business practices that make it hard to replace, you know. Yeah. If they had have done a better job of keeping the network modernized and replacing equipment more often, it gets easier to race, replace equipment. Sure. But if you've got a 15-year-old, you know, router from back in the midnight that you haven't updated because, well, why did I need to update it? Well, now it's hard to update. <laughs> it's hard to get parts for a 15-year-old car, you know. <laughs> That's true. Mm. So I don't take that. I, I think that's a bit silly. So a second topic that Mike brought to us was a call for open standards for broadband performance testing. Mike, tell us about that article. There are none in the U.S. I mean, there's, you know, we, we get these claims of, of uh, you know, broadband performance and, and, you know, pretty much everybody goes out and they run, you know, speed test or some other similar, you know, test and say, well, this I'm, I'm getting, you know, 20 gigabit or, or whatever it ha happens to be. And yet, when you go and try and download something, you know, performance is a whole lot worse, and, and there's no, there's just there's just no way to know what you're, what you're actually paying for, and and what you're being promised by mm -hmm. by the broadband providers. Very often, is not what's being delivered. And I know the FCC has been working on um, at least providing broadband testing. So they they have it, you know, they have the the application that you can run from from home and report back to the FCC and. There are also uh, apps for your for Android and for iPhone for uh, for wireless broadband as well. So those are useful, but uh, I'm yeah. not sure what test you could make that would be viable technically and at a business level. Because if you made tests, then people would start to say, "My broadband doesn't meet this. I want a refund." Type stuff. Well, that's kind of, yeah. Well, that's kind of the point. But it's also I think it's I think it's mostly standardizing um, the testing as as well as the reporting. Hmm. This is what I'm actually. This is what we're getting, hmm. right? Because we don't know what's getting. In fact, you brought it up when, um, you know, there, you, you brought it up with it, with respect to the guy who was saying his Netflix is being slowed down, and you pointed out all the reasons why the the test that he ran um, may not ex be accurate, right? Well, there's enormous variability. It's not that the yeah. tests aren't. You, the the system itself is resistant to measurement. You've got um, the local network in the in the suburb. You've got the regional network in the state or the city, and then you've got all the cross connections as it crosses, say, the federal backbone up and down the country, and then it goes to the data center. The data center's got a congestion point. I mean, how do you test? Where do you put a test? What are you measuring? Performance to what? Speed test? Well, the carriers all know where speed test is, so they accelerate speed test. They quas for it. Right. Um, right. So it lies. It is a measure of maximum performance, but it's not a measure of actual performance when the network's congested at 6 o'clock in the evening because everybody's clicking play on Netflix. That's true. Hmm. No, I'm with you. Yeah. But, but, that, but that's the reason why you know, there's this call for standardized broadband testing so, yeah. so that consumers can uh, understand what it is they're getting, what it is they're paying for. And if, if they're not getting what you're paying for, then you know, complain. Oh, we've already had this discussion. Service providers hate their customers. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, of course, you could do the, you know, the flip side, of course, is that service providers are operating at such large scale with such a lot of people that, you know, that complexity is its own, you know, kills them in a lot of ways. And simplicity is what they should be reaching for in their products and their capabilities. But service providers seem to not recognize that and continue to push into making ever more complicated products and ever more service mix you know well we can't just sell you broadband why don't we sell you broadband with cable tv 
and you can stream the TV to your iPad when you're not at home. You know, and I'm yeah. like, how does that work? You know, that seems like a very complicated business model. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's complicated. I think it's, you know, they don't, <laughs> fundamentally, I, I, broadband providers, they don't want to be plumbers. Nobody wants to be a plumber. And yet, they could differentiate, they could be value-add as mm. really good plumbers. They could do that. They don't want to, but they could. They want to provide content. Mm. They suck at providing content. Yeah. They're terrible at it. That's a bit but like a plane trip, pretending it's an experience, though. At the end of the day, exactly. a plane trip is a really bad bus ride. Yeah. And no yeah. matter how hard you talk about it, the seats on a plane are getting less and less comfortable as years go by, as they, and yet they still pretend that you know, being on a plane is an experience. Well, well, yeah, but get, thank you for leading into this, because I had a hell travel year last year with United. Mm. I switched over to Delta, and you know what? The exp- that experience was just leaps and bounds ahead of, Delta, uh, of United. Delta, mm-hmm. it was such a, a better flying experience. They got me home on time. Mm-hmm. They gave me snacks, for God's sakes. Snacks <laughs> on a domestic flight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were friendly. You mean they gave you something for free? Yes, and they smiled. No. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm telling you. I, it, was, it was great. I mean, that's all people want. I mean, so, so it's, you know, there being a better airline, and I don't, I don't want to get on all the things that Delta did really well because hmm. that would take up this whole call, but there being a better airline, mm-hmm. and, I think that, and I think the more people know that, they're going to win more customers. With broadband providers, they could do the same thing. They could be a better broadband, and, and they would win customers, and, and they'd, ha- they'd have happier customers. But I, I guess you know if you're talking about this plumbing model or the experience model, how do you how do you differentiate what 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 does a broadband provider do to give me a better experience other than just getting me content faster? Well, that's pretty much it. Get you content faster. I mean, so so in, in the in the net, net neutrality rules and um, in other places published by the FCC, I mean, there's this notion that um, you know pissed off a lot of people because they didn't understand it, but there was this notion of um, uh, you know, uh, non-discrimination in network traffic with the exception of um, you know, traffic engineering. Mm-hmm. And so what is traffic engineering? It's, it's prioritizing some traffic over other traffic you know, based on well-understood rules of what traffic needs to behave. So we know, for example, interactive traffic, like we're all on Skype, you know, this needs, it's, it's low bandwidth, but it, you know, it needs low uh, delay. And it, it needs very low jitter, right? Less than 5%. Less than 5 millisecond jitter is ideal. Right. And so knowing that, you, know, you want to groom the network to provide this kind of protocol, this kind of application, low delay and, and low jitter. It doesn't really need a whole lot of bandwidth. If you engineer for that against all the competing demands of, say, FTP and email, things that are not time sensitive, then you can deliver a better experience. Um, you know, streaming video. Again, it, it's not as delay sensitive because it'll buffer, but it is jitter sensitive and it's certainly loss sensitive. And so, engineering for those things and making those things work better in com- you know in comparison when they're contending for for bulk traffic makes everything that much better. These are just well understood principles that could be applied, and and that makes them a better um, a better broad- broadband provider. And also understanding caps are stupid, so get rid of those. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I understand. I take your point, but I also feel like, to a consumer, the provider is invisible. They're, 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 it's just a pipe that stuff comes through, and it, it's different from you know being 
wowed by Delta because your flight didn't suck. It's, it's, you know, once things are up and running, it becomes invisible. And, and then where do they add value? How do they mm. try to monetize that connection more? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see the, the local governments do more for the roads and improve my experience on roads in America. <laughs> so as I drive down the road, I expect them to leap out and wash my windscreen for me as a, as a service. So I would use that road more. <laughs> you know, they actually outsource that in New York City. <laughs> I mean, I don't see carriers as service providers. I see them as roads, and they deserve to be ridden over the top of, right? And the value of a road is the fact that it is what it is. If it's a two-lane highway, it's a two-lane highway. And if it's congested, there should be three lanes. Or the speed limit should be increased from 100 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour. <laughs> That's what a carrier is, right? They're not... The word service is a misnomer. They're not. They just carry stuff around, and it's like a road. You can't add value to a road. Well, no, but you can maintain it. Yes. Right? You can maintain it. You can address it. There are, there are, are protocols and algorithms, for example, to mm. – like in California, right? Mm. The, the, the red lights on, on highway entrances are supposed to try and smooth traffic entry onto the highways to, so you don't get those big backlogs. And, sure. I mean there are things that can happen, and whether or not they're effective is – up in the air. It's, it's well, you've also got, you can fix the cars as well, right? So a modern car has a much tighter stopping distance compared to a car from 40 years ago. So right, you and remember, you can use hub lanes, and there's, there's a bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, it's a road. I don't yeah, actually yeah. want my road to suddenly pop up and say, would you like to watch a movie? You know, I don't know. Exactly. But then again, I don't have a choice of roads. I, I pull out of my driveway, I have to use a road that I'm given. Mm-hmm. Same thing with broadband, right? I mean, I've got two choices here where I live in Syracuse. It's, it's Time Warner and Mm-hmm. And, and Verizon. That's all I got. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that, that, that's more choices than I have in roads. Well, that, I mean, <laughs> two choices is fine if they were just providing road service instead of trying to flog you a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff. Right. That's what I'm saying. If, mm. if they provided really good road service, if that mm. was your differentiator, because you're right. You're right, mm. Drew. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, nobody really cares about it until something breaks, and then who do they call? Yeah. Right. All right, let's, let's move on to talking about SDN because we haven't talked about SDN for all nearly 15 minutes. And oh, my God. <laughs> we've got two articles this week. First of all is a, an article in Information Week by Andrew Froelich talking about why IBM might abandon SDN. Now that's a bit of a shocker because IBM's been one of the key contributors to the Open Daylight. In fact, the Open Daylight Foundation, which is now becoming a key part of the future of SDN and probably the single most significant part, in my opinion, is um, they were the initiators of it and the significant contributors. And if they're pulling out, what does that mean? Andrew? Um, I thought maybe the author kind of misread the signs. Um, There's rumors that IBM may be selling its network hardware business. It did. Um, Sent it all to Lenovo. Oh, I I thought there was still some question about whether that was going to – I know they sent some of it to Lenovo, but they've still got a portion of it. No. All of it. All of it. It all went to Lenovo. Okay. All the hardware, of all the blade, network stuff, anything. Anything hardware in the enterprise except storage went. Networking and server, all gone. All gone. But the so, software, but they kept the software part. Mm-hmm. So the SDN part stayed inside of IBM. Yeah, so I don't see IBM as just because they don't have network hardware as getting out of SDN. Uh, they've, they're, as you said, very mm-hmm. active in open daylight, um, and they can continue to enhance that participation they can develop apps they can start a consulting business to get sdn up and running in their customers data centers i i really don't see ibm walking away from sdn even if they're walking away from network hardware mike yeah 
No, they're 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 not going to get rid of SDN at least at least not yet. And 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 while while uh, you know the author did make the make the point that that IBM does tend to exit um, exit markets. You know when the you know when the margins drop like they did with laptops, like they did with servers. Um, you know, if if two can be a trend, um, you know if if SDN if the SDN market does take off, whatever that market is, if that does take off, um, at some point IBM will will exit. But right now, um, they're not going to exit SDN because there's no dominant player. You know, I, IBM as a software company, they want to make sure that 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 their software and their services integrate with everybody else's stuff. And there's no dominant SDN strategy right now. There's Open Flow, there's Open Daylight, there's uh, all the vendor strategies going on. There's uh, NSX, there's ACI. Mm. So until something sort of you know, in, until the industry coalesces around a single thing, you know, it, it behooves them, it benefits them more to, to maintain a, their own controller. And right now, I mean, they're backing Open Daylight heavily. If Open Daylight becomes that controller, I, I imagine at some point, you know, if, if it becomes so widely adopted that it's just, it's a component like a server, they're going to exit their own controller and they're just going to write apps to Open Daylight. That's their strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll take you on there. I think that IBM lacks zero, has zero credibility in the networking marketplace, hasn't had any credibility since they walked away from their own networking products and took Cisco on 20 years ago. And um, why would anybody look to IBM for SDN chops? Because they just don't understand networking. Now, I think they might as well ditch the product and get out of it and focus on what they do, have a, have a chance of doing well. Um, because if the... Because they want to be a software systems company, and networking is part of that system, and they don't, they don't have a system of their own. They'll just get somebody else's. It's all just APIs, right? So if they have uh, a, an all, so VMware and and Cisco's ACI can still work because there's just API integration between the two. You know, VCAC yeah. will theoretically be able to drive Open Daylight in the future as well. It doesn't have to talk to NSX. OpenStack can use Open Daylight, but equally it can go and talk to Juniper's Contrail or NewArch's NewArch Networks with their uh, VVSP platform. There's no requirement for IBM to have networking chops. Because there are other companies out there doing it better, smarter, faster than IBM can. And customers are going to go, you, IBM, networking, comedy gold, get out of here. Well, the only reason why it, it, it benefits them to do networking, and, and, and let's bear in mind, there's, there's two parts of, of IBM here, and they're mm. totally different. I, I think your comments, yeah. as, as they relate to their global technology services or consulting, their, their services arm, I, I think you're spot on. Because they're actually separate from the STG group, which has... The, the networking stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the global GTS is still selling Juniper Brocade, Cisco st- networking mm-hmm. within their solutions. With the, on the system side, however, you know, they have as much credibility, more credibility, I, I would say probably than VMware in, in software networking. And if they want to put together a, a software, def- if they want to put together a, a software system, in, including virtualized server, virtualized storage, or virtualized networking, they need to have control of that networking stack for right now, and, and right now they're they're basing that on open daylight. If if open daylight became widely adopted by the industry, then they could drop their controller and just write to it. I mean, you you named off mm. you know six seven SDN strategies from various vendors. Yep. I mean, you can wave your hand and say that's just API integration. That's really expensive development time. 
yep. <laughs> which adds no value. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So mm. that's my thing. I'm not convinced. So Big Switch uh, came into the news this week with an article over at Light Reading, uh, where the, they've got a new CEO, uh, fresh off the uh, off the block from Cisco Systems, I think. Juniper. Juniper. Okay, so the remnants of Juniper's SDN strategy still litters its way across the industry as they change focus a while back. And uh, <laughs> uh, Big Switch Networks was being lined up for an acquisition. The Big Switch CEO came out and said, we're not for sale. I don't know who would really want to buy them, frankly. Extreme. Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think... I'm, I'm obviously contrarian to everybody because I think Big Switch <laughs> has a much more compelling story than most people understand. Um, because they don't have to manufacture hardware, so they're shifting to the merchant silicon running on top. But instead of running an overlay network like most other people over the uh, the hardware, so many people would go and buy you know white box um, Ethernet switches and then run Cumulus Linux to get an operating system and then use orchestration to do over the top stuff. Um, that's certainly what NSX sees value in that proposition uh, the however big switch is saying there's still value in having an operating system that does open flow so we'll do it on white box switches and then orchestrate what's underneath and there's a lot of the market who've been taught in my view over the last 30 years that you have to have control in the switch and I still think there's value in an open flow underlay network if you like where you can actually carve channels for the overlay networks through the available paths and I think that's now, what Big Switch isn't doing that, but they do have um, a platform where you can have the ultimate control of your network, which is not what NSX or ACI do. They're very loosely coupled, very low-tech solutions that don't actually give you the full level of control. Um, I'm not, and they, and the, the flip side of this is there's also a lot of money in networking, and they don't actually have to make a lot of money to survive. Right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But, uh, but given that, and I, I agree, I think it's a, a, an interesting approach to the market. Uh, they're also doing some focus on applications, which I think is is useful. Hmm. Um, but so that, j- with that approach, I, I still don't see them as an acquisition target um, hmm. because the, the folks who might want to buy them are already pushing their own stuff. Um, so I think Big Switch is just going to have to try to survive as a standalone player. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think Big Switch has – they're going to have a really hard time surviving just because all the big players have some kind of open flow strategy, specifically open flow strategy. Whether or not it's, it's – the whether or not it's, it's implemented well is not really the issue. It's perception. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let's face it. I mean – not many companies. The, 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 one, the big challenge with startups is is getting enough momentum that that you become a trusted vendor of like the big incumbents. And so, and, and Big Switch hasn't gotten there yet. They were in open daylight. They got out of open daylight. Hmm. Not you know, not really sure what was you know. Well, I have an idea what was going on there, but you know, rather expensive to stay in if if they had to retool around the open daylight controller. They don't really have a strong channel. I mean, they're competing against Cisco and HP and, and, and others in this space. It's, it's, they're going to have a really tough time. And, and let's face it, it, not just Big Switch, but, but pretty much all of the SDN vendors, their applications are, are I think, um, boring and are not right now and are not particularly um, – they're, they're, not, they're not really solving any, any of the really huge hurdles for most enterprises. 
Yeah, they're still working on connectivity before they move to services. Yeah. So they're still yeah. just connecting the endpoints together. They're not actually value adding to the connectivity phase. And then a lot of yeah. people mistake that for, well, if you know, I can just. A lot of people are saying, well, I plug my servers into a switch and they talk together today. Why would I go and buy this software? Yeah. Overlay and add that to it to do something different. I don't understand. There's nothing wrong with what I've got. But there are. I also wonder, and I'm not convinced about this one, whether the SDN market is actually going to be a multivariate system. So we are going to have 20 or 30 different products that compete in the space, and it's going to be a vibrant ecosystem instead of a monoculture. There's no reason for this market necessarily to be dominated by just one player. It can be a multivariate market. Yeah, that complicates integration, though, with with all the adjacent Markets, mm-hmm. so all the load balancers, firewalls, VPNs, all the other stuff that wants to touch a network, that that does become complicated as in multivariate. So at least at least what you want are is rallying around some standards or some products. And maybe the vendors have to grow up and actually do that. Then that would be nice. <laughs> I mean, like F5 is not exactly publishing APIs to consume their platform. And oh, yeah, they do. F5. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure, they do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh no, they they've got a full suite of APIs. I, I think you can pretty much drive the entire big IP mm-hmm. from the from command line. I'm I'm pretty sure. I haven't seen it. I mean, I haven't been looking at it because I don't think. Yeah. You know, I'm not convinced that F5's got a strong value proposition going forward at the moment. But, you know, they're all running around partnering with each other. But I don't see the sort of integration that you're talking about. You know. That's right. That's a thing. Hmm. Right. It's yeah. it's it's where you know where's that. There's right, a lot of sales partnerships, but not a lot of technology action. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Because, because I, I also agree. I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, there is definite value to having an intelligent overlay and an intelligent underlay. There's value in both of those places, and and you know, the network would be better, you know, having intelligence up and down on the stack, not just in one place or the other. And I think you know, a lot of company, a, a lot of vendors are missing that. See, we should just listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lead you should glory. No, you really shouldn't. <laughs> no, you really shouldn't. All right. Uh, well, Andrew, I think my coffee's finished. Uh, mine's all done. I'm ready for another. Mike, how about you? I got one more swallow, and then I'm gonna refill. Ooh, uh, get back to work. That's not. A, ooh. Well, that was the coffee break. The work in progress <laughs> for a title while we polish the fiber optic cables, and Mike swallows. And uh, you can find more about the show this week at packetpushers.net and follow the Packet Pushers on Twitter. Uh, If you've got any good names for this show, as you can see, we are creatively bankrupt and can't possibly think of a better name than the coffee break. Please send an email to me, greg.farrow at packetpushers.net. And uh, thanks for listening. See you real soon.